We haven't talked. We I talked to you about it. I haven't talked to the Raiders. I went on a date and it went well. Yeah, so tell that's him. very good. Tell him how it went. Um, well, I'm afraid he's gonna listen. Oh my god. <laughs> Right, because you told him about the podcast. <laughs> yes, Ooh, complicated. This well, is a complicated thing. Be, really be like, um, okay, it was, uh... it was fine. It was good. He has a lot to prove. <laughs> Let's see what happens. We'll no, see what happens. You know next. what I will say that was super wonderful that I feel like I will tell him this is that we went out. He walked me home. Yeah, old bonus school. like old school. I it felt really nice. And then the next day he texted me and was like, hey, I know this place to get good tacos. And I was thinking we can go to the museum. When are you free next week? So, like, the next day made a plan for a date and, follow- and like, made the plan. That's the biggest thing is follow through. You just want to see somebody that doesn't and, like, do the thing And, like, put effort where- in. Like, it was like, this is where I want to take you. <clears throat> this is what I want to do. You in. And I, for me, it's so lovely to have someone else plan. And for a long time I was like, it, it honestly, like, it made me happy and angry at past relationships. You know what I mean? Like, in a like, way. This should not feel like such a novelty that yes. someone is like, hey, I have an idea for something cool we could do together. Like, why are we like, holy shit, you do? <laughs> the bar is so low that I'm like, you mentioned museum? I'm okay. sorry. I just tripped over the bar. But no, it was really nice. We have a lot in common. And yeah, it was cool. It was really cool. The most noteworthy thing, though, is I was mentioning where we met. And I was like, oh, we met at this bar high dive. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, Quinn goes, what? And I was like, yeah. And why did you say what? Because that is the bar in Brooklyn that Matt McCraskey and I met at. This bar is popular. It's a fun it's bar. It's a good place. It's a good apparently, place. if you want to meet a husband, go to this <laughs> weird dive go, bar in Brooklyn and let's see if it me. can happen. But what's cool about it is, I think what it is, is it's totally unpretentious and it's a dive bar. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're, you know, I guess you're not meeting people who are trying to put on airs, which I think is something that maybe you and I like people not trying to put on airs. I do like someone not trying to put on airs. Right? I I like someone that leaves no jelly in the fridge and doesn't put on airs. That's... We were just talking about that episode with Matt, and Matt was like, Carrie, thank you so much for coming to my defense. To which I replied, Matt, I don't think I remember coming to your defense on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't. His bar is also low, though, for what it sounds like when someone's coming to, coming his, to his defense. defense. Well, that's good, because mm-hmm. I feel like I do do that. I do do that. Did you say doo-doo? I did. By the way, Quinn, your hair looks amazing. Both Quinn and I got haircuts this week. Yeah, I could stand to run a brush through it, but thank you. Have you watched Yellow Jackets? No. Do you oh love my God. it? Um, yes, I love it. It's like um, kind of a guilty pleasure vibe. It's not like, but it's got Juliette Lewis in it, and it's got um, Christina Ricci in it. So it's got some fun folks. I'd love to see it. It's like a now and then mixed with a horror movie. Horror or horror? <laughs> horror. A horror film. I just film. thought you said. Horror It's film. like now and then. It's now and then, but horrors. But horror movie. <laughs> it's like, well, it's 
debatable that it wasn't initially. Um, It's about a... uh, Someone once told me, they were like, what is there... uh, When is there going to be, like, there's no female Stand By Me? And I was like, "Uh, now and then? Don't you think Stand By Me, now and then, is the ladies Stand By Me? I don't like now and then. I don't think it's a good movie. So I... If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. I don't know. I, I... I can okay, okay. I'm taking it in. I'm letting it. I'm letting it wash over me. Yellow jackets is the now and me. then we deserved. Oh, interesting. Because they more did depth. now and then did want to be a little scary. It feels like it was Home Alone scares in that it was like a misunderstood old guy. This is scary, and fun. Anyway, they they acapella. All the girls are. I'm not spoiling anything, but all the girls are stuck on like. An island, an island, right? I don't think it is an island. I think they're just in the woods. They're stuck somewhere all together, stranded, and they do end up uh, singing, singing acapella. Acapella, I've been kissed by a rose in one of the more recent episodes that I watched. Quinn, that had to feel really. You can see do you why think I this, would love. Do that. you think this movie is for you? Do you think this TV show is, like, for your demographic exactly? I had to look at my computer to make sure I didn't write it. And <laughs> what'd you find? I did write it. Spoiler alert. No. Wow, you must be doing well, baby. <laughs> You're like, stop drinking so much. <laughs> you <laughs> so funny out. if I was not <laughs> only a functioning alcoholic, but, but I was a brilliant, a brilliant alcoholic <laughs> that, like, was like, deals, deals, deals. And, and I was, like, remember. selling scripts to Hollywood and then... Forgetting. I would love that. It would be so fun because I'd watch TV and be like, this feels familiar. Oh. Yep. Credits you know roll. I wrote this. That's cool, the cool, horror cool. movie we <laughs> Let's write that horror movie. Speaking of singing things a cappella, do you want to thank some patrons? Sure, sure, sure. What about Angel with two L's? What about at? What about Angel? <laughs> angel, you got two Hello. L's for your two wings because you're an angel for joining. Patreon. Good one. How about Amy? Amy, Amy, you're not even lame. You joined Patreon because you're amiable. <laughs> oh, good. Good one. Thank you. That is wordplay. Amy, it's a no brainy. And by brainy, I mean brainy because it's a no brainy to say Amy. We love you so. Quinn is really good at Scott Stamp chin singing. (laughs) Is that Quinn? When you were drunk, were you a member of Creed? (laughs) (laughs) When you were blacked out, were you in Creed? (coughs) Oh my God, COVID. (coughs) COVID. Could be. I mean, you joke, but everyone in this house has taken a rapid except me in the last 24 hours. Fuck. <laughs> okay, yep. tell me what's the next name. Okay, Joanna. 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 Jo Jo Joanna. 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 Or a fan. Or a fan. And you are a fan because you join Patreon. Cute. I'm on fire today. Yeah, thank God because I like kind of need you to pick up my slack. I'm feeling a. Well, listen, let's do a quick word from our sponsors and then when we come back, we're going to dive right in. Let's do it. Let's die. Let's die. Let's die. Let's die. Everyone. 
we have another podcast to promote. Guys, this podcast is awesome. And in fact, we have a really soft spot in our hearts for them because they have featured us on their true crime podcast. We want to tell you about the Indie Drop-In Network, specifically their true crime podcast. What they do is they take an episode from already existing podcasts and they showcase new true crime, which is super fun. And what's really cool is it gets people to listen to us to get a sample of one of our episodes and then they can find our full library. So if you've gone through all of our episodes and you're like, ah, I'm looking for a new podcast, go to Indie Drop-In True Crime and you can take a look and you can find the podcast, the next podcast you want to be on. Yeah, a bunch of different true crime shows are on there um, and you'll get to hear cold cases, murders, white collar crime, cults, military crime, social injustice, we were featured, you guys. Do you remember the episode we did, Carrie, uh, Common, When You Die? I love that That's episode. That's my favorite laugh, I think. If I look back, it's my favorite laugh in the whole wide world that we've done on Truly Darkly Creepy. Well, it's featured. It's featured on Indie Drop-In Network's True Crime uh, series. And so imagine. Imagine if you had never heard us and then you found us from them. Well, that's what you're going to do. You're going to get on there and find somebody else. I can't recommend it enough. It is Indie Drop-In, True Crime. Enjoy. Happy True Crime listening. All right, we're back. And in case you didn't know, you're listening to Truly Darkly Creepy. I'm Quinlan Pass. And I'm Carrie Ibama. And, and we were here. Love chitter chatter. Chitty chatter. Chat. Okay, so I'm doing this story. Who it's based on the HBO um, docu series Who Killed Garrett Phillips? Wow, have you heard of this? I have, and I watched uh, the first episode of it on an airplane, and then really wanted to watch the second, but had to get off the airplane. I tried to stay in my seat to watch more, and they were like, "Please leave the airplane." <laughs> Ma'am, we're taking off to go somewhere else. You really need to leave. Get out of here. Unless Your kids you were go to with Anchorage. you, and they were like, "Mom, let's go." Well, Griffin can't talk at the time. It was weird, but um, this was given to me by one of our Patreon, our dear dear readers, Christy. So Christy. Thank you so much for a long time. She had given this uh, to us to do, for one of us to do, and it was on our communal list. And so I took it this week, and I I tried to do it last week, and I was like, there's just so much information. I need a little bit more time with it. Um, I bet the docu-series was good, though. The docu-series. HBO usually does a... They do a bang-up job. Yeah. So I did this... uh, It was on... It was... The information I got was who killed Garrett Phillips on HBO. There was some New York Times. There was Wikipedia. There was NBC News. If you, if you want more of this story, please go to those resources because they're amazing. But this story takes place in Potsdam, New York. So there's this woman, Tandy Cyrus. She has two kids, Garrett and Aaron, and they live in an apartment building. It's like a nice, totally cool apartment building in this town. The town is really, really upstate what are you, New York. 16? What? What did I say? It's just so funny that you were like, it's a totally cool apartment building. I'm like, what does that even mean? I just mean like it was nice. Like there were there was like students Lots who of lived art there. Deco in the hall. No, it wasn't uh, like that. It just feels like like sort of like a small town apartment vibe. Got it, got just it. Just like nice, quaint, totally cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Copy that. Sadly, uh their father is not around because at Oh, like when Garrett was like three years old in 2002, his dad died of a brain aneurysm mm, and God, never that's recovered. So scary. Just like died. Fucking heartbreaking. Brain aneurysm stories are so terrifying because it just 
You don't get any warning on that. No. The only... The only solace I have, because I've I've lost some people with brain aneurysm, is that mm-hmm. it's quick yeah. and it's like painless. You know, it's like it's it's done fast and. Mm-hmm. Um, so when his dad died, the his dad's family really steps in and helps. You know, raise the kids and are really present in Garrett and Aaron's life. His paternal grandparents, like, he would spend a lot of time with them. His his dad's brother became sort of like a surrogate father. I mean, he was a really proud uncle, and he would see him. He had His uncle had two kids, so, like, they would get together often, and he had this, like, amazing relationship with his dad's family. Garrett was an incredibly outgoing kid. They say he took after his dad. He, like, loved to fish. It's Monday, October 24th, 2011. Garrett is 12 years old. They're interviewing the documentary, Neighbors in the Building. One neighbor is in the apartment building. They're students at a nearby college, and they're watching Dexter. She was like, oh, Dexter's one of our favorite shows. Me and my boyfriend are watching Dexter. And then there was a couple that was outside, and they were changing a flat tire right underneath the family's window. Mm -hmm. So the couple watching Dexter... They could hear people, you know, like it's an apartment building. You can hear, you know, what's going on sometimes in other apartments. Between 4.30 and 5, they heard running in a crash. Then they heard a moan, yell help, and they either heard an ow or a no. Mm -hmm. Now, they did something that I was really surprised by, which is they heard it, and then they went to go check out what was going on. Wow, I don't know if I would do that. I'd probably sooner call. So they did both. It's pretty... This was super interesting to me because it happened so quick. They, like, heard this noise. And because it was a totally cool apartment building, they were like, oh, something's wrong. Let's go check this it out. This is not normal. Let's go check it out. So she goes, she knocks on the door, and she hears a click, like the door locking. Ooh, that's not what you want to hear. No. And so she's like, this is really weird. So she trusts her blink and she goes and calls 911. And this is at like 508. She calls 90 or she at 508. She calls 911. The police show up a few minutes later. The police show up at 514. He listens at the door. He doesn't hear anything. He then knocks and he hears someone walking around. And he's like, hmm, this is weird. So at 521, he, like, contacts his supervisor, and the supervisor gets a hold of the landlord. So they call the landlord at 521, and the landlord's like, listen, I'm dropping off my kids at a practice or whatever, but I will be right over there with keys and to open the door. The officer waits in front of the apartment door the whole time. Mm-hmm. So at 524, he knocks again with his patrol stick. And then at 5.33, the landlord comes and opens the door. When they open the door, they find an empty apartment except for Garrett Phillips' body. They immediately call it in. It is an unconscious boy. They say around 10. He is 12 years old. They call, um, they tell the neighbor, they call an ambulance. They tell the neighbor who had called the police. They're like, listen, an ambulance is coming. Can you please go outside to receive it and guide them upstairs? So she goes down. She's like waiting what's going on. They then have to find the mother of this child, and they locate Tandy Cyrus, and 
on the dispatch, they're like, oh, this is John Jones' ex-girlfriend. John Jones is a deputy sheriff in the town. They find Tandy, and she is with her mother-in-law and her brother-in-law, and they all immediately go to the hospital. They get to the hospital. They walk in. They see Garrett. He is attached to breathing tubes. His grandma walks in. She sees him. She kisses his hand. He codes. He dies. It's so sad. The cause of death is strangulation and suffocation. Whoa. That's not what I thought you were going to say. Just because of the owl, I thought, mm, okay. So I had said there was the neighbors inside and there were also the neighbors outside. Yeah. The neighbors outside changing the tire had heard noises as well. Mm-hmm. And they waited out there until like 5, 21 or something. And they went in. So... When the police go in and take a look, they see there's a window open and the blinds are halfway out the window. So Mm -hmm. they know that that is where the perpetrator had exited the building. The couple that was changing the tire left very close to when the landlord came in and opened the door. So the, like, possibility of them seeing it is such a narrow window where they didn't know, like... The luck that this perpetrator had of the people like just leaving, as they, like just as the just as the fucking noises off, like yes. choreographed, like as soon as we turned a corner, yes. you came out the window exactly. and went down. Exactly. Fuck. So immediately they have all these eyewitnesses, or you know, of of what happened, or of like the sound and stuff, where they can start to put a timeline together. They don't have any white eyewitnesses of you know seeing anyone, but they do have like sound cues and time stamps that they can sort of figure out what's been going on. So the neighbors all give their statements and below the window they see a big crack in the building like someone had gone down and hurt themselves when they jumped out of the building. Oh wow. The town finds out and it it's like widespread. It's such a small town. John Jones Tan, Tandy's ex boyfriend the deputy sheriff is like can I come over and see you tonight and she's like yes so he goes he immediately comforts her rumors start to spread people are like oh it was a group of boys they're playing a game they found a bra on the floor and they're like oh it's an autoerotic asphyxiation because they found a bra on the floor lots of leaks from the police department the police says they didn't talk to any media but people found out and were talking Lots of rumors were flying. And so they started to interview and they were like, we have to figure out what's been going on, obviously. So they're talking to John Jones or they're talking to people around and they find out that Tandy's ex-boyfriend is this guy, Oral Nick Hillary. He goes by Nick. I want to be very clear. Oh, good. He goes by Nick. You don't like Oral, the- that's... Sounds like you'd get made fun of a lot in school, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, well, he, this guy was like a soccer star. So I bet, like, I mean, when you're an athlete, things kind of, you know, I don't know. You can be he named had, Oral. Listen, he has bigger fish to fry than his name in this situation. Okay. I can assure you that. All right. So he immediately comes up as a suspect, as Tandy's ex-boyfriend. He's a soccer coach at a nearby college. He had a really successful career in soccer. He originally lived in Brooklyn, and now he lives in the North Country. And I guess, like, what they had said in connection was that he was a pretty strict disciplinarian. He and Garrett didn't get along when Tandy and him were dating. Mm-hmm. He was a military guy. He was a coach. He had three kids of his own. 
as well. And at one point when they were dating, they all moved in together. And it sounded like Garrett didn't like how strict he was. But Tandy later recalled that she never saw Nick ever be violent towards her kid. Mm -hmm. So all they really have right now is that Garrett didn't like him. And I guess he didn't like him. We do know that the relationship ended up breaking apart because Nick didn't get along with her kids. Okay. Now, another thing to complicate this is the North Country, this area, is a pretty fucking white area. Mm-hmm. And this is a black man. And this is an interracial relationship. And there, there was absolutely conversations of what an interracial relationship was. And so I'm curious, this is editorializing, but I'm curious if the kids heard something at school and that's also why they didn't like the relationship, right? There's like a lot going on. We don't, we'll never know that, right? Mm -hmm. So Nick comes up um, and the next morning after, um, after the death, after his death, the next morning, Tandy comes in at 8.30 in the morning and is interviewed by the police with any information she knows to see when she talked to Garrett last. And with her is John Jones, her ex-boyfriend, and he's holding her hand in the meeting. At this interview, they bring up Oral. They bring up Nick as a possibility. And he's the only sort of suspect that's ever brought up to her. There's no other possibility. Um, There's no other names that they're putting in. So then they call Nick and they... They let him know. They call Nick and they're like, hey, we have to let you know Garrett Phillips died. And Nick is at a loss for words. He's emotional. He's upset. He's like, this is in, this is wild. What happened? What's going on? And they're like, listen, if you can come down and give us some information, we really appreciate it to give us any information. He's like, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'll be there. I'll help. They're like, we wanted you to go through a roster. He goes down and... Before he does, he calls his friend who's a lawyer based in Brooklyn. And he's like, yeah, I just got word that Garrett died. I'm going in. And his friend was like, why are they informing an ex-boyfriend of that makes sense. Of this? That makes no sense. And that's when his alarm bells went off and is like, oh, this isn't a good situation. You're a suspect. And you're black. Yeah. Maybe don't, don't run go. over to the station. But he's like, I unassisted. want to be of help. So he goes. So... Him and Tandy's relationship, there's reports that it, like, ended contentiously. But based on the text that they show on the HBO, where they broke up, but they were still in contact. So what happened was, is they met in a bar in 2010. Tandy was sort of still seeing John Jones, the ex-sheriff. He has a history of anger and racism. So Tandy's working at a bar. She meets Nick. They start to hit it off, get along. And they start seeing each other. At one point, John Jones goes to Nick's home and confronts him and asks him, are you seeing Tandy? To which Nick says, no, you should talk to Tandy. There's reports of Nick's car getting keyed. There's reports, like, it's not a good situation. These men do not (laughs) like each other. So the relationship starts off a little, like, gray area, who's with who. Nick was still living with his ex-wife, and he had three kids. So eventually, the two start officially dating. They go on vacation together. They go to different countries together. They move in together. And it's not going well between the kids. And when they talk about it via text, via messages between Tandy and Nick, 
they're like, listen, I don't, I don't want this to end it, but we have to put our kids first. Both of them say that in a way that they're very understanding. And when the relationship ends, Tandy reaches out to Nick and is like, hey, listen, I'm at this bar. I know we broke up, but we can still be friends. Besides, you're an amazing dance partner. Like, like it was not, it wasn't an angry breakup. Mm-hmm. Whereas they have reports that this John Jones guy... Tandy had written a letter back in 2010 about how she felt endangered by him. Okay. And when they showed John Jones that she had given to the police, when they showed John Jones this letter, he was like, oh, she didn't write that because she doesn't know what these words mean. Rude. There's no reports. Again, we don't know who keyed Nick's car. So he basically was like, oh, she said she's scared of me. She's... Like she's, she's crazy. just stupid. She, well, this isn't her. Okay. Somebody else wrote this because she's too stupid. <laughs> Fucko. So, flash forward the day after the murder, Nick is going into the police station to help with the roster of kids. He's a soccer coach at the college, but he's a member of the community. So he's like, "How can I be of help?" So he walks in. They have a video of this interview, and it is the most maddening thing I've seen in a long time. So first he's sitting down and the police are playing like good cop vibes, you know, being Mm -hmm. like, hey, we're just going to read, read your rights really quick. And he's like, whoa, 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 what? No, 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 no. (laughs) Like, and they're like, oh, no, 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 sorry. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. So then they start to interview him and they're asking him these questions. He's like, I came here to help. Like, what's going on? And so while he's in there, his And then they quickly whisper his rights. (laughs) He didn't think to bring a lawyer to this, right? He's just going in to help. And then when they try to read him his rights, he's like, they're like, oh, never mind, never mind. And then Nick immediately is on to what they're doing. And he's like, you're not being honest with me. What's going on? And he's keeping his cool in such a way that he knows exactly what he's doing. But it's also like you can tell he's just trying to not do anything wrong. Ooh, being so careful. Being so careful and explaining and not saying anything incriminating because he knows it's going to be used against him in some way. In fact, like, they're like, we're just trying to eliminate you. He's like, what do you mean eliminate? I came here to help. Like, you're using words like eliminate. What do you mean? And he keeps asking them, like, where do you, where were you on Monday? And after badgering him and obviously getting him there under the false pretenses, they're like, where were you Monday? And he says, no comment. Yeah, of course. So, again, if you look at it on both sides, from the police perspective, they're like, oh, he's hiding something because he said no comment. No. What I looked at it was like this guy was being badgered by these police. He's basically like, I don't want to talk to you till I have a lawyer. Exactly. So he's calling his lawyer friend. And they're like, sir, you're free to leave. He's like, all right, I'm free to leave. They read him his rights. And he's like, I'm free to leave, right? And they're like, yes. He tries to get up to go. They block him. Physically. Physically from the door. And he can't move past them. He can't hit them. He's stuck there. He calls his friend. They take his phone away from him. <gasps> this is illegal. This is 1,000% illegal. He's, they, like, there's a video of them blocking the door. They're telling him lies. They're saying all this stuff. They're like, I mean, at one point, he's like, I'm invoking my Sixth Amendment. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, you, do you know what the Sixth Amendment is? Like, he's trying to just not answer any questions but they won't stop pestering him. They keep him there long enough. They tow his car from the lot. This is so illegal. They also get a search warrant. And they strip search him and take photos of him. Completely <gasps> naked. Oh my god. 
they find a scab on the outside of his... I remember this now. On the outside of his ankle. And they're like, this is this is where you injured yourself. Oh, please. They this talked is to him, so unfair. They talked to him, by the way, two days after the murder. The day before, they had him as a suspect. They went to him coaching a game as soccer at the local college. The detective, the investigator, went to go check him out. They took a look at him and they were like, oh, he's limping. I can see him limping. And they signed an affidavit and they signed all this stuff, which helped them get the search warrant when they interviewed him. There's a video of that game. He's not limping at all. Part of me is like, I really, part of me is like, was the investigator seeing what he wanted to see? I mean, we've talked about this so much. We're like. Or deliberately lying. Or deliberately lying. I don't know. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. So while Nick is in there getting interviewed, his assistant coach comes by and he sees his car. So he goes and he's like, what's going on? He walks in and they start interviewing him, the assistant coach, Ian. And they're like, so what's going on? And he's like, well, he came to my house at like 5.15-ish. And they're like, oh, how do you know? He's like, oh, I was on the phone. I was on the call. Let me look at the timestamp. The timestamp he called was at 5.21. So he's like, yes, I was on hold and Nick came into my house. So alibi. This alibi, but they're saying he's a fit man. He could have run over there because it wasn't stop, that far. Stop, stop, That's so absurd. So they're on the, so they're like, he has an alibi and they're like, well, are you sure? You know, they're, they're questioning Ian Fairley being like, are you sure? You know, he could have lied. Or did you try to do, what's his relationship with Tandy? Like all this information. So finally, after they strip search Nick, take photos of his naked body they wouldn't let him leave. They tow his car. They put him in a hazmat suit. They take all of his belongings and he can leave. He leaves with nothing. Nothing. Not his phone. Not his car. Nothing. His friend from New York, his lawyer friend, immediately drives up to Potsdam mm-hmm. a couple hours from New York. This interrogation, initial interview rather, not even a ter- interrogation. They, they don't have enough evidence to arrest this guy. Mm-hmm. Eight hours. They take his DNA. They take his fingerprints. At the crime scene, there is no DNA under Garrett's fingernails. There is no DNA match. There is no physical evidence. There are no fingerprints in the apartment. Six months later, March 2012, there's still been no arrests. However, the town all thinks Nick did it. Mm -hmm. He is fired from his job. He moves back in with the mother of his kids the community starts this justice for Garrett signs. The reward is over $40,000 for any information on Garrett's death. The justice for Garrett signs become this really beautiful movement by the family to keep pressure on the police and the DA and all that stuff for justice for Garrett. Mm -hmm. However, it quickly is changed into anti-Nick rhetoric. Right. This right. justice for Garrett becomes let's get Nick. It gets so bad that Ian, the assistant coach who has the alibi, he leaves and goes to another school to coach at that school in Buffalo. Signs start popping up. He then moves back home with his parents around his neighborhood. Signs start popping up. They're like following him. This guy who's his alibi. They're trying to put pressure on him to be like, never mind. Totally. Didn't see him. Nick is still in Potsdam. He has to be there. His kids are there. Mm-hmm. He's not going to leave his kids. Mm-mm. 
months later, Nick decides to sue Potsdam for illegal search, defamation, so a civil, a civil case against the police department. Because yeah. he feels like this is the right thing to do. Be careful. That didn't work out for that guy in making a murderer. You sue the police, the police... Uh, so the defense... One way to shut down that lawsuit. The defense that's to put civil the person attorney, suing yeah, you in jail. The, civil, the attorney for the police on the police department was like, that was a huge mistake because what I did is I went after him and I was going to investigate the murder. And I was going to get him doing a deposition and let it be on the record and I could ask him any question I wanted. Now, Nick at the time is interviewed and being like, I will answer any question in a deposition because I have a lawyer there with me. I'm going to tell got the truth. I've got my clothes on. I've got my clothes on. I know what's going on. At the time, there was also a an election for the DA in that town. Now, the current DA was getting a lot of flack because she wasn't prosecuting. She wasn't pushing charge, pressing charges because she knew she didn't have enough evidence mm-hmm. against Nick Hillary. So this GOP DA, Mary Rain, promises that she will bring Nick to trial. Mm-hmm. She befriends the she befriends Tandy and the whole Phillips family. She uses this case as a political game to get elected. She uses this case to to instill fear in people and say, I'm going to get it done. So people vote with their emotions. And frankly, people believe this man is guilty, let's be honest, in part because of the color of his skin. So she runs on basically two unsolved cases and she is elected. When she's elected, she engages this mutual assistance committee, which reviews the case and will help bring charges. While they're investigating in the case, they have they find this video that's of the high school. In the video, you see Nick Hillary pull in, wait in his car because it's raining. He's going to see a soccer game at the high school. You then see Garrett Phillips leave on his board. And then you see Nick Hillary leave and make a left when Nick Hillary's home is to the right. Now, throughout this process, Nick is like, so they're so they're at the deposition and they're interviewing him. And they're like, were you at the school? And he's like, yes. They're asking him all these questions and like, did you go straight home? He says, yes. And they said, oh, we have video of you making a left. So this becomes a like smoking gun where all they have is, is a, a parking lot, turn. a video. And and Garrett Phillips happens to be going home. And they have that's the, that's the last video that we see of Garrett mm-hmm. before his death. And instead of making a right. Nick makes a left. This, people believe, proves he is guilty. However, there's no license plate in the video. But at the same time, in a deposition, Nick admitted that it was him. Nick Hillary is arrested based on that evidence. He is held 70 days in jail. They keep putting him back because, quote, they needed more time. Are you allowed to do that? Yeah. Okay. You don't need to post bail if they're like, oh, we're doing more investigation. We don't have all the information. We're doing more. Finally, the judge was like, okay, you've had enough time. And they release him after 70 days. He's finally released on bail. His family is ostracized from the community. His daughter is a part of his alibi. Now, she came home from soccer that day on October 24th at 4.30. So we obviously know he was with his assistant coach at 5.15. She comes home from soccer At 4.30, she sees her dad. He then leaves for the high school at, like, 4.35. He then comes back home from, like, 4.55 to 5.15 to when he goes to his 
assistant coach's home. His daughter's his alibi as well. Not only is his assistant coach, but his daughter. And we all know that, unfortunately, family Family is not the most, you know, it's not the best alibi. So what we do know is between 4.53 and 5.08, Garrett was killed. So in that time, we know that based on his daughter's testimony that he was home. During the grand jury, they're interviewing his daughter, his alibi. And there's no defense attorney there, right? They're just trying to show that they have enough evidence to to prosecute. Mm-hmm. She badgers his daughter so much that the judges like stop. And the case in 2014 was dismissed because of prosecutorial misconduct by Mary Rain, wow. the DA. Wow. However, it's not done. 2015. Is there some sort of double jeopardy in this at a certain point? No, because it hasn't gone into the trial. So in 2015, he's charged again because they take the same information from the grand jury to that and they get another conviction. So he's charged again in 2015. And at one of the hearings, he starts to get more support, right? They do an article. There's like more media attention happening in his case. One of his supporters yell, when are we going to hear about John Jones? Oh, shit. So at this point, the media knew nothing about John Jones. They knew that he was there at the interview. They knew nothing about him. At this point, it comes to light of the letter that Tandy had written mm-hmm. month, 10 months before the murder, saying she was worried about her and her kids. There is a phone. There is a phone call that is John Jones calling the dispatch. When he finds out that Garrett died asking who was the officer that was at the door. He also had keys to the building. What's also crazy is at this time, they happen to see a video of Garrett on his way home and he passes by John Jones' house and you see John Jones pass Garrett. John Jones is also in the area when Garrett is killed. And I want to be clear, the same evidence they have of Nick Hillary being at the high school, driving past, driving near Garrett, it feels the same as John Jones, and they're not looking at John Jones. They do have photos. They did take photos of John Jones' body, but he is fully clothed. It is just his hands, just his feet, not his head or face Mm -hmm. in any of it, Mm -hmm. so you don't totally know. And they admitted that they only took photos of John Jones so that if if Nick Hillary is like, you only took photos of me, that they had something to say. No, we took photos of him, too. Look. He is fully clothed. He's just, like, smiling with his arm around the cop that was probably at the door. Absolutely. So, again, this media attention is coming to light, so they're able to get some more more experienced lawyers to join the legal team. A trustee at Nick's alma mater ends up paying for his defense, and then... Right before the trial, Mary Rain claims that they have new DNA evidence connects Nick to Garrett's murder. It was a partial profile of an individual that was millions of times more likely to be Nick Hillary's than a random stranger. That's pretty confusing to say. All this is to say they ended up bringing it to court to see if it was admissible, and the court was like, no, this is not. It's such a small fucking DNA amount. However, people in the public were like, oh my gosh, they have DNA, and they're no longer allowed to use it. He's definitely guilty, and he's going to get off, right? So this is years into the investigation that this DNA sample appears. Nick Hillary moves out of Potsdam to New Jersey to await his trial. His trial is in 2016. He is tried for second-degree murder. The day before, they do they pick out the jury. The day before the trial begins, Nick Hillary calls his attorneys and is like, listen, 
I don't want to do a jury a jury trial. I want to do a bench trial, which means the judge is the judge and the jury of the trial. They're yeah. not going to engage the jury. Yeah. The reason is, is he was there during the jury selection and he's like, I don't trust that these people can be impartial and I'm going to take a risk on this one judge than these 12 strangers. Okay. His lawyers are like pretty on the fence about if this is a good idea or not. We don't know. However, it was found out later that one of the jurors that was selected on the on the bent on the um, on the jury was friends of the Garrett family. <laughs> it's a small fucking town, <laughs> but it's a gamble, right? So the judge has all the yeah. information, including information that the jury wouldn't be privy to, right? You know, right? So while they're doing it, the defense team has hired a PI to sort of investigate what what witnesses they're going to call to the stand. The PI locates the couple that was changing tires outside the building. Yeah. The couple has since broken up. He calls the guy and he's like, hey, this is so-and-so from this case. The guy doesn't ask who he's working for. He just assumes he's working for the prosecutor. So he goes over his testimony with the PI, the private investigator. And so the PI is able to contact the defense team and be like, hey, this is their witness. They're flying him out from Hawaii to testify because he's a member of the military. So flying him out to wire to testify, and he says that he saw a black man on the second floor. Keep in mind, right after they did a interview, he saw nothing. Right. His story has changed. Okay. So then they contact the girlfriend. The defense team contacts the girlfriend that they've since broke up. She's she like, we calls, broke up because he was racist. He's a fucking liar and a racist. She calls him and records the conversation. And she's like, that's not what we saw. And he's like, no, you didn't see it. And she's like, that's not what we saw. They end up flying out. The, the defense team flies her out. No, no well, the defense, <laughs> what happened was the prosecutors are they like. They get back together. They get back together. It's, so she just started. This is a romantic story. God, this story is so fucking long. So anyway, so what happened was is they, the woman ends up contacting the defense team and is like he's lying he's full of shit I was there we were both interviewed we saw nothing of that sort it was Mm -hmm. too dark you couldn't see anything in there let alone the figure let alone knowing what the fucking race is the prosecutors find out that they found out about this witness and so when the witness took the stand he says he saw a figure but he didn't describe anything because they knew that if he was cross-examined or they could bring another witness it was all good then the defense makes a discovery that's like um we have something that could exonerate our defendant altogether. The DA had interviewed an inmate by the name of Greg Brown. He saw John Jones at the building 15 minutes before the murder. Brady material, which means it's favorable to the defendant. And as a prosecutor, if you find it, you have to share it with the defense. Let me guess. They fucking bury it. They buried it. Mary fucking Rain. She better this... be in jail for that. That's nuts. Even the other, they're like other star prosecutor was like she should have handed over she should have handed over he was like i almost lost i almost walked out then and there but i couldn't leave the phillips family you know on their own what so mary was like well it was it was there was no evidence that indicted john jones so i didn't think it was you know i didn't think it was material witness i didn't you know that's i you know i didn't go back to law school so they try to declare a mistrial it doesn't work the defense then goes over they The defense goes over to the jail. They interview this guy, Greg Brown, for 90 minutes, and they decide not to call him as a witness. They think he's credible, but they're like, you know what, they couldn't, they didn't want to interview him. They didn't want him to take the stand. 
Also, John Jones' DNA doesn't match, and there's a video of him walking his dog at the on video at the same time of the murder. So he does also have an alibi. But at the end of the day, it's like this John Jones was never investigated, and, and his whole influence into the case was from the beginning. Remember, him and Tandy were broken up. He called her when he found out Garrett was killed. Mm-hmm. He was there with her holding her hand during the initial interview with the police. Mm-hmm. Tandy testifies that she never saw Hillary be physical with Garrett. And when the trial is settled, Nick goes back home, spends a week with his family while they're waiting for the judge to make his decision. He goes back. We see him saying goodbye to his kids to go find out if he is guilty or innocent. The verdict comes in, not guilty. Thank God. It is so fucking heartbreaking, though, because you see Tandy and Garrett's family so upset because they do believe Nick Hillary mm-hmm. is the killer because that's all they've been told by the police. For years. For years. And there's no other... There's no other suspect. This is all they've been told. So in their mind, he did do it. Yeah. After the trial, Mary Rain says, we're not looking for anyone else. We are 100% sure Nick did this. The investigation into Garrett's death is closed. She's not even looking at other possibilities. As of now, Nick has filed a civil rights lawsuit against the Potsdam Police Department. Tandy is working on raising money for after-school programs in honor of Garrett. In June 2018, Mary Rain was barred for practicing law for two years in New York because of severe and persistent misconduct. In March 2019, the new DA in town was reviewing new leads in the murder, which they consider an ongoing case. So they are still investigating Garrett Phillips' murder. I don't think Nick did it. I don't think John Jones did it. Mm-hmm. But what I do think is that we've seen this so often where the police had an idea of who it was and they wouldn't let go. And you have John Jones, who is racist and had a fucking vendetta against Nick Hillary. Mm-hmm. And he is whispering in Tandy's ear that it's him. Mm-hmm. And he's doing everything in his power. Like, his whether he's intentionally lying or his blind hatred is making him see it right we talked about this with the investigator it's like mm-hmm. is he seeing what he wants to see or is he lying and we'll never know but nick has been proven innocent and is able to go home with his family but his name is now forever aligned with this case and if you google it there are people like the local newspaper whenever a story would come out about this, they had to shut down the comment section because it was so vitriolic and hateful. It was the most awful hate Mm -hmm. speech. So that's the story of who killed Garrett Phillips and And Oral Nick Killer, and we don't know the answer. But it's also a story of a man... And they don't... In the the documentary, they don't... They don't take any stabs at that. No, I mean, they talk about John Jones. They do say that he had an alibi at the time. The thing that's most suspicious about John Jones is his... His insertion of himself? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he rushed pretty quickly. And also, like, I think what's pretty suspicious is that Tandy had written that letter Mm -hmm. and sent it to the police department about her being afraid of him. Mm -hmm. None of that came and called into question. Mm -hmm. You know, and... So the police are all convinced it's Nick Hillary, and in the interview they still maintain it is. Um, 
it's it's a fascinating case. And I think what's also interesting, and they talked about this, was like, usually when there's a wrongful convictions, right? We have like Julius Jones. We covered him. It's like after there's an indictment, after there's a conviction. Where I think with Nick Hillary, what was fascinating is it was before the conviction. There was enough media attention to draw attention to the case before the case was, before the decision was made. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to have, like, a really amazing legal team in his defense. But if he didn't, he'd be screwed. Yeah. Which so many people are, right? Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for telling that story, Carrie. Let's let's take a little word from our sponsors. All right. Do you get confused by essential oils? I don't know how to use them, but I know I like them. And that's how I feel, too. And I want to be a person that uses them. Like, I support it, but what am I doing, you know? Totally. So there's this company, Simply Earth, that you're going to love. They send you an essential oil recipe box with everything you need. So it has the oils, and it teaches you how to use them. It says, oh, do you want to make a... I don't know, a cream out of this, a lotion? Do you want to make a deodorant out of this? And it shows you exactly how to use your oils, which are all, by the way, totally toxin-free. They sent us a package of what you would receive. And can I tell you, it is it was like Christmas morning here. Simply Earth gives 13% of all profits to end human trafficking around the world as well. Gotta support that. I love Which is that. like, I love a company that helps, but also does some really nice, cool shit that's meaningful. Whole thing, this whole kit, it's not gonna break your budget. It's gonna make also a completely rad gift, wouldn't you say? If you use the code TDC, if you go to simplyearth.com slash TDC, you get a free essential oil diffuser. That's a good deal. So again, if you want it, which you should, go to simplyearth.com slash TDC and it starts smelling beautiful today. Not all encounters end up in the news. Some are passed down from family. Some are kept hidden in journals and some are reported on the Nightmare Society podcast. On the Nightmare Society, we share your true horror stories, chilling accounts of home invasions, attempted kidnappings, obsessive stalkers, and even close calls with convicted murderers before they landed on a most wanted list. So come join us if you dare, because the scariest stories are the ones that really happen. Carrie, do you want me to tell you a story? Um, you know what? You Let's thought end I'd here. never ask. Let's end here. <laughs> okay. Dear readers, thank you so much for joining well, us. You've been fun. such a gift. What a mitzvah. Don't stop me now. Hold on. I want to see when what we're recording. March 4th. This is a March 4th app. This is when you're leaving. You're on a flight to Hawaii right now. Are you stressed? <laughs> Am I stressed? You're on a flight to Hawaii right now when this episode's coming out. February 4th. When are you coming back? March 3rd. I'm on a flight. I just arrived home. (gasps) How's the jet lag? How are the kids sleeping? I'm so sick. (laughs) (laughs) Can I tell you something? I always want a Bloody Mary on a plane, but the mix that they give you, um, one of the top three ingredients is high fructose corn syrup. It's unfortunate, and I just want to I want to stop our regularly scheduled programming to reach out to those at united at delta at jet blue and say can we not find a better solution for tomorrow today well why don't you do a tomato juice delicious bloody mary mix why don't you just bring a tomato juice 
and a hot sauce and a celery and a salt and pepper and a Worcestershire's. Well, you order the tomato juice. Go on. And you put it in like a little, we should get you like a little hooch bottle and pour the fixins. All I'm saying is BYOBM. Bring your own Bloody Mary. BYOBM. BYOBM. There it is. She's Get that tattooed. Um, You're so hungover. My story. <laughs> I feel it so hard. <coughs> but guess oh. what's tonight? Palv. Yes, Carrie's making palv, y'all. It's palv night. Oh, what a, oh, what a night. All right. I got my information from the Hartford Current. Current? Is that how you say that? Current? No, I'm just laughing because I got my information from the Hartford Current. Um, the old AP News, Washington Post by Lynn Darling. Lynn Darling, you are a darling. The Journal Inquirer. Um, I got a New York Times article in here. Some people. And even something called UPI.com. Wonder what that was. Do not know off the top of my head. All right, let's just do this thing. This is the story of Cheyenne Johnson. Let's start with, uh... Debbie Glatzel and Cheyenne Johnson, they're a couple. They met in a Bridgeport supermarket. At the time they meet, Cheyenne is 12 and she's 20. Hmm. Okay. Uh, no, that's not okay. <laughs> Sorry. Right. No, 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 no. Not okay. What happened is she knocked over a display and he chivalrously helped her pick it up. Wait, she was 12 and he was 20. Opposite. Still not okay. Still not okay. To say it was love at first sight. Oh, no. You can't. You say it's abuse at first sight. She says that she tried at first to dissuade him and kind of be like, no, no, we can't do this. Um, I'm too old. And in fact, you know what? I'm going to befriend your mother. Um, or is that grooming? But when he's 16, four years later, and she's still in his life, he asks Debbie out, and she's like, yes. He drops out of high school. He's doing kind of odd jobs to support his mother at home and siblings, and Debbie's working as a maid at a Holiday Inn. They start living together at Cheyenne's house. So now... It's Cheyenne, it's his siblings, it's his mom, and it's his girlfriend, Debbie, living together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone moves to the country. And uh, I'm going to tell you what Debbie says about Cheyenne. She says, Cheyenne's problem was that he was too good. That's his problem. He's too good. I want the TV movie of this, right? I think we've had enough of TV. I'm sorry. Other people are like... I don't know. That guy's kind of quick to anger. Um, He's pretty possessive of Debbie. He had an argument at work. He was working for a tree service and he had an argument with someone there. And in response to the argument, he took a knife to a stuffed animal and ripped it up. Kind of weird. It's not a real animal. It is a stuffed animal. Mm, But I don't know. I don't really feel like we know Cheyenne. Okay. But we're going to. We're going to jump forward and we're going to, one of the articles, it talks about what happened through the eyes of Cheyenne's younger sister, Wanda. So at the time, let's say Cheyenne's now 19, Wanda, his sister, is 15, and it's February of 
1981. Cheyenne calls in sick to that tree service job that he has, uh, says he has a sore throat, and... Same. <laughs> ditto, Cheyenne. We've been there. <laughs> Debbie's headed to her work. She's working at a kennel for dogs. And... Cheyenne goes to work with her. So to be clear, he was too sick Plant to hooky. trim yeah. trees. Yeah, we've been there too, Cheyenne. Um, Alan Bono, or Bono, do you think it's Bono, like you too? For sure. Let's go Alan Bono. He's a kind of a friend of theirs, and he also manages the kennel that Debbie's working at. Because his sister owns it. Right. He's 40, and he's kind of a short, stocky guy. Um, he likes to tell them stories and kind of be the life of the party, get a lot of attention because he's older. So he's like, I'm older, I'm wiser. Let me tell you how it is. And they're like, wow, listen to this guy. He takes them out to lunch at a bar. Sounds like a fun guy. And they're all having a few yeah, glasses of wine. Bono. It's too confusing to call him Bono. I'm just going to call him Alan. Alan <laughs> drinks a lot at lunch. And to be clear, he drinks a lot. Always. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's planning to quit drinking soon, and he wants to celebrate that decision by drinking. Right. Of course. Of course. After their boozy lunch, they head back to the kennels. They're hanging 10. Debbie takes Cheyenne's two sisters, Wanda, who's 15, and Janice, who's 13, and they've got a little cousin there, too, Mary, who's nine. Um, And she's takes them to go grab some pizza. Um, And then she kind of, Wanda says, it felt like she had a, her blink went off. Mm -hmm. And she was like, we got to hurry back. I feel like there's going to be trouble. And when they get back, Alan's like, come on upstairs to my apartment. It's above the kennels. And they go up there and he turns on the TV and he's kind of drunk and being a little uh, wild. He's punching his fist into the palm of his hand. Like, over and over again while he's talking, like, really emphatically. And everyone's getting a little uncomfortable. Like, the mood is just, like... It's turned sour It feels a little unpredictable. Everyone goes downstairs because Debbie's getting, like, I don't want the kids in here vibes. So she's like, "Let's, let's go downstairs, let's go downstairs... Alan grabs that little, little girl, Mary, as she's starting to leave and won't let go. And Debbie sort of struggles with him, gets him away... They go downstairs. Cheyenne is there, too. And he goes back toward Alan's. And there's some sort of kerfuffle. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. It gets heated. The vibes get scary. Debbie tries to break up the fight, but says Cheyenne won't move. She's trying to, like, pull him away from Alan. And then Wanda says... She heard Cheyenne start to growl like an animal. And she sees something shiny flash through the air. And then she says all the, like, heat of the moment, the noise, it just stops. Like, everything feels like it freezes. And Cheyenne just walks away, walks into the woods, staring straight ahead like a zombie. And Alan just stands there, punching his fist still into his palm and then collapses and they realize he was stabbed with a five inch blade that Cheyenne was carrying 
He'd actually been stabbed, it turns out, four times in the stomach and heart. Come to find out in the aftermath of this, we're going to go back in time because what had been going on previous to this event taking place, previous to Cheyenne stabbing Alan to death, is that Debbie has a younger brother, David. He, at this point in time, has been possessed for over a year. In fact, when they moved to the country that past summer, they started dealing with some crazy shit. First, they move into this house and somebody left a waterbed in the master bedroom. And everyone's like, whoa, a waterbed? You left a waterbed behind? Sweet. Let's all lie on the waterbed. And David is like, gross. I'm good. I don't want to lie on that waterbed. But then later, he's alone in that room by himself, and he feels like something pushes him. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That, that was, was so really scary. scary. That was so scary. No. What was that? It was the um, heater. Oh, it was one of the... my God. That was talking about this story. That was so scary. That was really scary. That was the perfect sound effect. It was like a fucking knife. It was like a that blade. That was so scary. I hated that. Oh God, I'm so sorry. It's just the house. It's just the heater making a weird noise. Holy shit, that was wild. What a time to be alive. Thank God we are. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, sorry. So okay, he so goes he's alone he's in the room with the waterbed, and he something pushes him onto the bed. Okay. And he says he turned and saw an old man in, like, a torn shirt and blue jeans standing in the room, and that um, he said, beware. And then he saw that man again that night. And his skin was burned and black looking and he was barefoot. And he said that he had feet like a deer. Like hooves. Okay. So we're thinking this is like Satan vibes. He tells his family about it after he sees the figure for that second time. And the mom of he and Debbie, her name's Judy. And she's like, oh, I believed him right away. I've read about the supernatural. I know about the Warrens. So I, I'm always reading their stuff, right. and right, right. it's probably a ghost or a demon or something. Twelve days after this happens, they're like, let's get Ed and Lorraine on the scene. Right. All this is happening four months before the murder of Alan. Okay. okay. They call the police, and they're like, there's dangerous stuff happening in this house. Ed and Lorraine do. Mm-hmm. David is writhing in his bed at night he's shouting curse words he's screaming he looks like he's being choked by somebody that's not there he looks like he's being stabbed by something that's not there he also is having a feeling that something's going to happen I didn't couldn't find a bunch of details on this but they said he demonstrated the ability to predict the murder. I don't know in what detail, but okay. it seems like he foretold some elements of what will happen to Alan. He ends up attacking his mom and he squeezes her boobs. Don't do that to your mom. He's a 15-year-old boy. Don't really do that to anyone. Nobody wants their boobs squeezed. <laughs> don't, don't run around squeezing <laughs> Squeezing boobs. people's boobs. That feels like not the move. Well, he attacks his grandma with a knife. 
I don't know what's worse. I would do the squeeze boobs. I would choose <laughs> squeeze boobs over being attacked by a knife. Well, that so the, feels like an it, easy just, solution. It's really out of control to a point where the family is doing like, let's sleep during the day because we all have to be awake at night to try to restrain David because he's going to have one of his crazy outbursts. And we all, it's like an all hands on deck situation. Okay. They start calling it the beast and they would have an idea of when the beast was going to take over David's body because he'd do this thing where like he'd drop his head down and he'd start kind of quietly snarling and then he'd lift it and he'd do like an evil laugh. All from a fucking waterbed. The power. Well, right. All from the waterbed. Don't lie on a waterbed is the moral. Also, though, they have a toy dinosaur at the house that comes alive and starts walking around by itself. Um, they Rats. start seeing shit levitate, rocking chairs start flying around, Ooh. books are moving, um, a cake pan with a cake in it shoots all the way up to the ceiling, leaves cake all over the fucking ceiling. Waste. We hate to see that. We hate to see that. <sighs> wow. The Beast would even call David on the phone and he'd be like, beware on the phone. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. That's <laughs> so insane. Is this all Cheyenne? This is all David. No, I know, but is Cheyenne doing it? Oh, nobody's there. Okay. I mean, a green hand came up from the ground and grabbed Debbie. Is it Cheyenne doing it? No, not unless Cheyenne's a goddamn magician. There's some pretty crazy things happening, all right? Including that there's, like, poltergeist activity. So sometimes it's really scary, and sometimes it's just a damn nuisance where, like, (laughs) they'll pull out all the laundry and... (laughs) And they have to rewash (laughs) Judy at one point said... They're punks. That's what they are. I tell them to go back where they came from. And the reason she says they're punks is that at this time, they believe her and the Warrens are pretty sure there's like 43 demons and two devils living in David. It's like a, it's a party in David. Wow. The priests from the nearby parish do a few deliverances which is, from what I understand, it's kind of like the poor man's exorcism. exorcism. Yeah, we've talked they about allowed. them. It's like they're not allowed by, like, the cardinal, but they're like, let me see if I can throw some holy water. Let me see if I can get some holy water for this. Yeah, yeah. The, oh, yeah, because the bishop was like, no, you're not doing an exorcism. And they were like, all right, can we do a deliverance? Or... We don't need permission, you know? Um, Cheyenne's, like, living there when all this is going down. And he's trying to help. He's holding David down at night when he's doing these fits and stuff. And he is challenging the spirits or the devil Mm. or whatever's going on here. And he starts kind of not taunting it, but being like, take me, you know, that kind of thing. Like take me instead of him. Mm -hmm. And Lorraine is like, don't do that. Trust. Like that's not okay because that's really, really dangerous. And you just don't do that. You don't talk to, to strangers, the beast like that. Beasts. Yes. Correct. Um, one night, Cheyenne's looking out the window and he says, the beast, there he is. Oh, no. And Debbie's watching him and he starts kind of baring his teeth and growling and she slaps him and he has no reaction and she slaps him again and then he kind of comes to and she's like, I think the beast just went into you. Like, I just saw you act this way. I think the beast went in you and he's like, oh my God, no. I take it back. Don't take me instead. Yeah, too late. So she says on several separate occasions, she hears voices coming out of Cheyenne's mouth that aren't his. And it sounds like they're, it, two, they're multiple voices coming out at the same time. 
like an impossibility. Right. Um, right. She one of the days she saw this happen was the day that Alan died. Okay. When Alan was killed, Lorraine Warren calls the police the day after and is like, just so you guys know, I feel like it's pertinent for you to know that guy, Cheyenne, that you arrested that stabbed that guy. He's possessed. And I feel like you guys should know that. So the defense attorney goes to see Ed and Lorraine and they talk to him and he's like, I think I want to take this case because Ed and Lorraine are, from what I understand it, are telling me that if you're possessed, you don't have any control over your actions. And that's really interesting from a defense perspective. Right. Also, I don't know what this means, but he's like, plus the wounds in Alan's body, they were too deep to have been made by human hands. What the fuck does that mean? There's also a bunch of weird stuff like no rips or tears in Alan's clothing, supposedly, that he felt like would support a claim of demonic involvement. Hmm. But the Superior Court judge, Robert J. Callahan, is like, no, dude, you can't use that as your defense. It's It would be impossible to prove. So... It's it's unscientific. It's irrelevant. We're not going to let you do it. Um, the defense attorney is like, I want to put these priests on the stand. And the judge is like, again, you're not listening. No. Ed Warren is like, I want to go on the stand as a character witness. Can I go as a character witness? Not as like a paranormal expert. And they're like, yeah, I guess so. And so he takes the stand and he's like, this guy, Cheyenne, was really considerate really quiet. It's really hard for me to believe he would have murdered anyone. Okay, because they can't argue possession, they're like, right. we'll just do self-defense. <laughs> but then a barmaid <laughs> that's that had the, served... That's the level below. Yeah, yeah. We can't do possession, so second choice, self-defense, self-defense. The barmaid that served them at the Mug and Munch Cafe that day goes on the stand and is like, um, I was serving those men the day that this happened and they drank they drank between 13 and 15 glasses of wine. They were there for three hours. <gasps> That's so expensive, that bill. 13 <laughs> glasses of wine each or I together? Don't know about each, but even, say it's not even each. Say it's seven, say six, it's six and a half but by two over three. By, so say Debbie was drinking and they were drinking. They each drank like four or five glasses or seven depending on how many of them were imbibing. Either way, I think the point is, it does sound like they were drunk. And they were driving the kids. Smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An EMT testifies about arriving on the scene and saying that Debbie um, was crying and her dad arrived. And she started saying, oh, daddy, he didn't mean to do it, but you know how he gets when he's drinking. Oh, damn. Another police officer testifies that Debbie was yelling, help him, help him, he's been stabbed. And they were like, where is Cheyenne? And they found Cheyenne at a bar after he had stabbed Alan. And there was no signs that he had been possessed. But Ed Warren is like, look, possession doesn't last 24 hours a day. That's not how it works. They're in and out of you. It comes quickly and it leaves quickly. And Cheyenne isn't a danger when he's not possessed. He's not a danger now. 
And I promise he won't take on the devil again. Like, oh, but that was he a real have... mistake before. <laughs> I, I don't think you can actually, if you can't, no, no, no. Like, I, the devil feels like he has a little bit more control than There's you do. kind of this push and pull of like, it was the devil and then other people that saw it happening are like, I didn't see anything that would have made me think that. It seemed like these guys got drunk and got into a fight and then one of them ran to a bar after he killed the other. Like, there's these two very different pictures being right. painted of what happened. Um they deliberate for 17 hours over three days and they convict him of manslaughter instead of murder. Basically an intent to harm, but not to kill. Yeah. It feels like there was an altercation. They were really drunk. It does feel like it's an accident in some ways, although the intent to harm, I mean... And it, I wonder what I'm was satisfied like. with that. I would have been so interested to be in that room and just hear those deliberations. I also think, too, is finding out that he, Alan grabbed this nine-year-old girl and wouldn't let go. I'm sure that doesn't help. Like, do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like that, I mm-hmm. think, is absolutely a part of the decision. I think it's also the atmosphere when this happened sounds like it was extremely chaotic where I think that's what Wanda says she remembers happening like I think you're gonna get a different story from each person that was present when it happened and not because they're trying to give you a different story but I think it sounds like something different everyone was drunk not the kids but (laughs) everyone was drunk there was an atmosphere of chaos and I think it was really hard to figure out it's not even really clear what they were fighting about exactly He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. And what obviously ended up happening is during the trial, his defense lawyer, Manella and the Warrens are getting mocked by everybody because they are like, you're trying to profit off this tragedy. Mm. Right? Like Ed and Lorraine are trying to legitimize themselves or be a part of it or get their names in the paper again and be like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to use devil possession as a defense like that's never been done right and now people are going to know our you know they're everywhere right and lorraine yeah our podcast should be ed and lorraine we should be ed and lorraine for halloween i know you've pitched that i like it i'm gonna keep pitching it the defense attorney is like look i heard tapes of cheyenne speaking the names of 42 demons in latin and I almost got a police officer to take the stand and say he saw um, a levitation. I mean, there were we were close on this, uh, and I'll believe it to the day I die. Like I wasn't here to get attention, get my name in the paper. I was here because I believe my client was possessed by the devil. That's why I was using that defense. I talked to I'm Ed and Lorraine, they and they convinced mental, me. I mean, temporary insanity as opposed to self-defense. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that seems more in line with double like, possession. Yeah, but maybe they, like, couldn't get enough evidence that would allow them with, the, you know, they couldn't get, like, a clinician. I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I think that's the only time they've tried to use devil, demonic possession as a defense. Well, this is why, because you didn't told, work out, but. It didn't work out. They weren't allowed. Yeah, I'd be interested if that's ever allowed. I don't think it's ever going to be allowed. But Cheyenne and Debbie did get married while Cheyenne was in prison, and Cheyenne finally got that high school degree. Remember, he had Mm -hmm. dropped out. Mm -hmm. And the parole board voted unanimously for Cheyenne to get an early release. He served five years of his sentence. And Has he killed again? No. Good. Yeah. Good. Thanks for hanging in there, if you're still here. If you're still here, we're happy to see you. If you're still here, are you guys tired, too? Are you Are you as tired as we are? 
Are you all right? Dear readers, we're going to leave you there. Um, we love you. Stay safe. Um, be well. Take care. Join Patreon. Like, subscribe, tell a friend. Live your dreams. Keep taking those rapids. Avita Zen. Bye.